Warning, this ad contains spoilers. This episode of Practical Significance is brought to you by ASA Studios, featuring its original TV series, Statistical Succession. The series follows the Bernoulli family, whose empire controls statistics and science in Switzerland for well over 100 years. The family patriarch, Nicholas Bernoulli, is experiencing declining health. His four sons vie for their positions within the family and society. Nicholas is a painter and politician, deeply envied by his brother Hieronymus, named after a painter, but without any particularly noteworthy skills. Neither of these two brothers even have their own Wikipedia entries, which infuriates them. Their brothers, Jacob and Johann, are mathematicians, vying for the love of their father and the respect of the Swiss mathematical community. Jacob, much beloved, created the Ars Conjectandi, a fundamental paper in probability. These two brothers joined forces to take the side of Gottfried Leibniz, the famed opponent of Isaac Newton, in the Calculus Wars. In season two, statistical succession picks up with Johann, grieving the loss of his big brother Jacob, and determined to carry on his legacy. Johann marries into the Curie family, an academic dynasty in France, and the subject of a planned spin-off series. Family battles are fought, and choices are made that will affect the future of mathematics and statistics. Subsequent seasons follow the many generations of Bernoullis. So many Bernoullis, almost no one can figure out which is which, especially when about half of them are named some variant of Johann or Nicholas. Grab a beverage and some popcorn and be ready to binge watch Statistical Succession. And now, let's join the podcast. Hello, and welcome to Practical Significance, a podcast to inspire listeners with compelling stories from statistics and data science and to propel data-driven careers forward. Here are your hosts, the ASA's Director of Strategic Initiatives, Donna Lalone, and Executive Director, Ron Wasserstein. Well, welcome everyone to Practical Significance. Ron and I are especially delighted to have a new colleague with us, Andy Phillips. Andy is the Executive Director of CSAB. And I'm going to start by asking Andy to introduce himself and tell us a little bit about his job and maybe a little bit about CSAB. Welcome. Well, thank you. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, I sort of have two roles right now, just for the next week, actually, as executive director of CSAB. But I'm wrapping up a 25-year career in the federal government, where I, for the last 14 years, I've been the academic dean and provost at the U.S. Naval Academy. So that wraps up at the end of this month. And then I'm free to just do CSAB work from, from there forward. So two jobs. I've uh, spent my entire career in academia. In fact, it started back in 1988 when I was a faculty member here at the Naval Academy, just a junior faculty member teaching computer science. That's my discipline. That's how I got involved in CSAB in the first place. And I did that for a little over 10 years at the Naval Academy as a civilian professor. And then I moved to Wisconsin, where I became a department chair of a department of computer science at the University of Wisconsin in in Eau Claire, a little bit northern part of Wisconsin. Eventually became the graduate dean and the vice provost there. I found myself drawn into leadership roles. And then in a stroke of luck, got a chance to come back to the Naval Academy after another 10 and a half years in Eau Claire and become the academic dean and provost. 
So a uh, 35-year career, the last 14 of them back here at the Naval Academy as the provost. So that's occupied my entire career. The CSAB part is interesting because I got involved in that in the mid-1990s while I was at the Naval Academy in the first place. And like most people who get involved in accreditation activities, CSAB, for those of us who are in computing, uh, I was reluctant because like most people, I said, what's in it for me? I know it's a lot of work. What's in it for me? A very selfish attitude. I certainly wouldn't have described it that way at the time, but you know, looking back on it, it's like, yeah, what's in it for me sounds a lot like all I care about is myself. But what I discovered, and I think most people discover this, is there's a lot in it for you. You actually, as an evaluator, learn a lot more than you feel like you give. You get from a visit a lot more than you feel like you give in the visit. You know, you do the visit and the accreditation, but you learn so much more about other programs, about other universities, about the way other people do business. They have better ideas than you've got. You get a chance to see that and bring that back to your place. It's really quite seductive to do that. So I got involved in CSAB in those early days. That was before it was even part of ABET because CSAB merged with ABET in about the year 2000. By the way, CSAB is an acronym that originally stood for Computer Sciences Accreditation Board, but it doesn't stand for anything anymore because it's not an accreditation board anymore because it was absorbed into ABET, which does that. ABET is also an acronym, which used to stand for Accreditation Board for Engineering and Technology, and it doesn't stand for anything anymore. Because when it absorbed CSAB, they didn't want to have to extend the acronym to include computing. So there was like a truce, like, hey, CSAB, you'll go with that acronym with no full name, and ABET, you'll go with your acronym and no full name. So they're just CSAB and ABET now as a result of the merger back in about the year 2000. So I guess in a nutshell, that's me. And then, so I've been doing CSAB, ABET work for many years, and just this year, taking over the executive director job. Well, I uh, understand about the acronyms, Andy. The older I get, the less I'm willing to stand for. So I suppose that's somewhat similar. I want to ask you a few questions. Uh, I think I'll start just backing up a little bit with some questions about accreditation for our audience. Mm -hmm. And in particular, what CSAB and now CSAB as part of ABET accredits. We'll get around to data science and statistics here in a minute, but Sort of from soup to nuts, what does CSAB accredit and just walk people through the accreditation process, if you would? So any academic program worldwide, it's mostly U.S.-based, but worldwide, can ask ABET to have ABET come visit that program and look at them through the eyes of accreditation. And if that program is computing-focused, if they're doing something that is deemed to be based in computing, so computer science, information technology, information systems, data science, cybersecurity, those would be the fields right now. If it's any of those, then CSAB is the arm of ABET that would send a team of evaluators to that campus to compare that program, whatever the program is, against published criteria. So soup to nuts, as you say, a program that's not been accredited in computing would say the words, we think we have a good quality program. We'd like to be recognized for that. Who would do that? Answer, ABET does that worldwide. Okay, but which part of ABET? Because ABET has engineering and technology and applied science. What, what, who does that? CSAB does that on behalf of ABET, and they accredit in the programs I just listed, and there are published criteria for each of those. So a program would look at the published criteria and say, okay, I think we do all those things and we do them well. 
please send a, a group of people here, uh, professional evaluators, to compare us against the published criteria. And the team that would go would have been trained by CSAB, sent by ABET, and they would go and visit the program and, and evaluate it compared to the published criteria. So that's how that works. That means the, the professionals who do those visits are people in the field, in academia, in industry, in government. It, there's no restriction other than your credentials qualify you as a computing professional whose background and experience is sufficient that were you to do a visit, colleagues would say, yeah, I, I respect this person's credentials. I trust that they know what they're talking about as they review our program. And CSAB will train them before they go. Thanks. That's very helpful. So let's go ahead and zoom in on the current initiatives with regards to undergraduate data science programs. If you'd say a little bit about that, and then if there are some other things in the works for CSAB, we'd love to hear about those as well. CSAB actually started back in 1985. And for many years, it was almost exclusively computer science. And then information technology and information systems were added. But but those things were added slowly. So three disciplines for a very long time. But in the last decade, cybersecurity was added about 10 years ago, maybe eight years ago. Data science added, what, about two years ago. And right now, not new disciplines, but extending that the application of those disciplines to the two-year associate level programs, to the master's level programs, because previously it was just baccalaureate only, four-year only. So now Two-year programs can ask for accreditation in cybersecurity. Master's degree programs can ask for it. And then there's even consideration for, well, what about certificates or, or badges? What about programs that don't award a degree, but award some credential? And the organization is saying, we want that credential recognized as being a quality credential. Who would do that? Well, ABET would like to say ABET does that. And so right now, CSAB is involved in trying to figure out what it looks like to evaluate a program that isn't a degree-granting program. So right now, it's a very busy time on growth of new disciplines, cybersecurity and data science, and new uh, degree-granting or, or new certificate-level programs where any of those disciplines would apply. But data science is the newest, being only about two years old. And, in, and of course, nationwide, it, that field is booming. And people are still trying to figure out exactly what data science really is from one institution to another. That's not unique to computing. That's actually the way computer science was when that began. People argued over what is computer science. Actually, you know, in the early days, people said computer science isn't a discipline. It's a fad. That, that was the actual phrase. It's a fad. It will go away. That's what people said. They said that about cybersecurity a decade ago. That's a fad. That's not a real thing. It'll go away. I haven't heard that about data science. I think people are getting used to the idea that sometimes things actually do evolve and become, you know, real disciplines. And that's where data science is. Today, there aren't very many data science programs that have gone through accreditation, only a handful, but there are a lot of data science programs in the country. And I think as they mature, they'll reasonably say, what can we do to uh, market our program uh, as a quality program that others will recognize? And the answer to that question traditionally is what sort of accreditation is, is out there. So that's sort of where that stands right now in the accreditation world. Thanks. That's great. These fads seem to be hanging on for quite a while. It's impressive. I made a career out of one of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's as long as you can hope for a fad to last, at least it's long enough to make a career out of it. So Andy, as our listeners are, our ASA members think about accreditation of programs, but particularly like accreditation of data science programs, why should they care? How does it impact them? 
Anybody who's involved in any program, but in this case in data science, will reasonably ask themselves eventually, how are we going to market this program to students, to their parents, to anybody who's interested? How is it that people are going to know what data science is and whether what we're doing is of any quality or not? You know, Just because we say so isn't really going to convince anybody. The typical scenario is mom and dad bring son or daughter to campus. They want to visit programs. You, they find themselves in the department chair's office and they say, tell me about this thing called data science. I hear a lot about it. What is it? What do you guys do? And are you any good? I say, is your program any good? And a reasonable department chair, and I, I used to do this when I was a department chair, would say, well, of course we're good. That's why I'm sitting here. And, and let me tell you about what we're doing. But that's a little thin because they know that you're a little self-serving when you say that. But boy, it's powerful when you say, look, we're ABET accredited. And let me tell you what that means. And then you can point to the standards. You can point to the internet and say, you can look up the standards yourself. You can look up the list of programs that are ABET accredited. You'll see we're there. So you can rest assured what we're doing is nationally recognized as being what the norm is, what the expectation is for this field. And we're doing it well. That's the quality part of ABET. And in my experience, when you say that, the parents and the students walk away and they say, okay, that's a compelling argument. I, I don't have to take his word for what, for what his program is. I can go look it up, compare it to what he says, and see what we think about that. And as programs evolve early on, it is reasonable for folks to say, what kind of data science are you doing? How is what you're doing the same or different from somebody else? And you can compare and contrast, but sometimes it's more powerful to say, look, the real question you should ask is, how are we doing compared to the professional standards that places like ASA or the ACM or the IEEE put out as the body of knowledge for the field? And ABET would enforce that through criteria. That always worked for me when I was in Wisconsin. Uh, most of the students and parents would say, okay, that's very useful. Andy, I want to just go back a little bit to what CSAB is, because I think for some of our listeners, you know, the ASA involvement is relatively recent, and so they may not be familiar. So you mentioned ACM and IEEE. I wonder if you would just say who CSAB is. Yes, so CSAB is really nothing more than a single organization that brings together the professional expertise of three professional societies the Association for Computing Machinery, ACM, the Institute, the IEEE Computer Society, so the Computer Society part of the IEEE, and newest member is ASA, so that we don't have three different professional societies jockeying for position in computing accreditation discussions. All three contribute expertise to CSAB, which merely operates as the glue and does just exclusively criteria development for accreditation and training and placement of evaluators, nothing more. That the professional organizations, as you know, do a lot more, but CSAB is strictly about accreditation vis-a-vis -vis the interests of those three uh, professional societies. And ACM and IEEE CS were the two originals that came together to found CSAB back in 1985. Thanks. That's really helpful. I'm going to shift gears a little bit back to something that you said in your introduction about being drawn into leadership positions. And we often get the question from folks, how is it that I become a leader, right? Whether it's in academics or um, industry or government. And so I wonder what advice you would offer to folks who are considering that leadership trajectory. 
leadership roles are great if you want to make a difference in some way, if you like working on issues and working with people on issues. There's a lot of satisfaction you can get out of doing good things and getting things done that are positive for your organization or for your people or for other people. But I would always caution folks that leadership and selfishness don't go well together. That generally speaking, people who think mostly about what they want, if they find themselves either saying out loud or to themselves, I want to be in a leadership role because I want something for myself, or, you know, I want to change something in my own image. That's not generally a great reason to take on a leadership role. It really should be about helping other people get things done, helping make the organization better. And that hopefully will be rewarding all by itself for you as the, as the individual leader. So, you know, really great leadership is about providing opportunities for others to thrive or creating uh, vehicles for great plans to be put in place that serve others. And great leaders always credit others for the accomplishments. It always makes me cringe when I hear somebody who's in a leadership role stand up and say, I did the following. I did X. Did you really? Did you really do that all by yourself? I much prefer to hear that person say, you know, you all did X. And I'm so pleased to have been part of that, have been a witness to your incredible work. That's selflessness. That's a phrase we like to say at the Naval Academy a lot, where this place is all about developing leaders. And I like to say to our, our midshipmen, all of whom are going to graduate and serve their country, right? I always say to them, it is not about you. It, it, you know, we have a phrase, ship, shipmate, self. First, the ship, then the shipmates. And finally, third, last, it's about you, which really means it's not about you. It's about the team. It's about what you're doing on behalf of your country. Leadership is great. And I, always, I encourage people to pursue that. But I always say, look, do it for the right reasons. Don't do it because you've got something you want to fix because it's what you want. Do it because it's something you think is, is good overall for for others and for the organization. And that can be very satisfying. That's really good advice. And it occurred to me as you were saying it, that nobody ever looks bad giving other people credit. You know, that's <laughs> a, that's never a bad look. It's always a good look. And usually it's true. You didn't do it that's by right. yourself. I mean, you, other people should get the credit. You know, okay, maybe you were the, as I like to say, I'm the, I'm the talking head. You know, you put me on stage and tell me what to say, and I'll do that. But I didn't do anything. I stood on the stage and everybody else did all the work. That's actually what I'm going to do as a CSAB executive director. I, I'm not doing the visits. You know, I'm helping organize the, organize the visits. Well, as you're organizing, and uh, now that you've had you know, weeks <laughs> to absorb it all, what do you see as being the challenges and opportunities that you have, that CSAB has going forward? The challenges CSAB has are the same challenges it's had for, for years. It is an organization run exclusively on volunteer help. The evaluators are not paid a cent. So to the extent that there are volunteers, it works well. And when there aren't enough, it's really hard. So the challenge is always to find a way to convince busy professional people to take time out of their day to do something else, to do more. Because usually what we'll hear is, I'm already very busy. It's like, I, I know you are. I, I trust you are. But if you'll spare a little bit of time, this will be very rewarding. You'll still be busy. You'll be busier, but it might pay off. And so our, our challenge as an organization is always recruiting people who will invest the time, the effort, the enthusiasm in, in doing the training and the visits on behalf of CSAB and ABET 
to the benefit of other programs. And as I started by saying, you'll benefit yourself. You know, I always try to tell people, trust me, I know you don't think you will. You're, it's going to feel like hard work. But when you come back from visit, you're going to say, okay, that was great. I really learned a ton. And I, I just didn't realize how much I was going to get out of that. So that's the big challenge. The opportunities are, as I say, in some of these areas where we have no real track record on uh, certificates and badges and associate degrees. This is new stuff for, for ABET you know, as a whole and for CSAB in particular. But the reason CSAB was selected to sort of be the pilot on that is there are so many opportunities in the computing field. There are so many certificates um, that you can pursue. So it's, it's a field full of opportunities. We just have to figure out uh, how to do it. That's going to depend on getting volunteers again. So it it's always comes back to that always trying to find people uh, willing to invest their time and their, their enthusiasm in, in contributing. Plus, even as we speak, somebody's out there creating a new fad that uh, <laughs> may become part of CSAB at yeah, some ge- point. Generative AI, who knows? Maybe that's, uh, is that a fad? We'll see. That's really important and a message, not the fad piece, the piece about program evaluators and what you get from that, from that experience is is really important and something that we definitely want to highlight for our community as we hope more members become program evaluators. And I think that's great. I, I think if members of the ASA who are curious, I'll put it that way, if they're curious, they should get in touch with me and give me a chance to talk them through uh, my argument for why this would be would be a rewarding thing to do, both for the profession and for themselves personally. Because I know if you're not involved in accreditation, from the outside, it looks like uh, just a lot of administrative extra work. It's like, yeah, that's what it looks like, but there's more to it than that. Um, and I guess this is a, an appropriate time for me to also give a shout out to our two wonderful colleagues, Kathy Enzor, who is the past president of the ASA, but is serving on the CSAB board. And of course, Dave Hunter, who is our alternative, but also represents the ASA and a number of of the committees. And so a big thank you to uh, Kathy and and Dave. Now I'm going to shift gears again. And, And as I always tell our guests, I try not to make this a selfish request, Andy, to say this is really about the bigger picture. But honestly, it's all about me wanting to add to my podcast and reading list. So, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) I'll own it. (laughs) And so we like to to close by asking our guests what they're reading, listening to, and or watching. So what's on your TBR or playlist? All right. Well, I'll, I'll give you a, a plug then. How about the Journal of the American Statistical Association? How about All that? right. <laughs> There's your, your plug. Um, <laughs> yeah. What's on my reading list? Well, I have a sort of a varied reading list. I just finished a book called The Lowland by Jhumpa Lahiri, which is a, a fiction novel about a story about a pair of brothers from, from India and how their lives unfold both in India and in the U.S. and the various twists and turns. I love that book because I love the way the author writes. It's just a very well, well-written novel. Perhaps on the more serious side of things, for folks in academia, well, for anybody, I highly recommend the 1619 Project. You know, if you're following that national news and, and anybody who's doing that, you can't help but, but hear the back and forth that goes on about, you know, diversity and equity and inclusion these days. And nothing like getting smarter about that. And I think the 1619 Project book is a great place to start. So no matter where you stand on that topic, that that it's worth knowing what people are talking about. 
So uh, I read that in the, over the last year, and that's really quite quite remarkable. For people specifically interested in higher ed, going back to your leadership question, Mindset by Carol Dweck. That should be required reading for anybody in higher ed, whether it's in a leadership role or not. Uh, the idea of the various ways one can, I'll just say, pigeonhole students into a particular mindset. You know, people should know what they're facing there. That's a book I read maybe maybe eight or nine years ago, and it really caused me to think deeply about the, at least at this place at the Naval Academy, about the kinds of students we have and their potential, you know, trying to tap into their potential. So that's a much more serious book. Um, Where the Crawdads Sing, that's a real fun read. Very, very good book, very fun read. It's got a got a pretty interesting backstory regarding the author. And if anybody wonders what I'm talking about, just Google the author's name and you'll read a lot about that. And do that before or after you read the book. It might make you think twice about what you just read. There's a couple of ideas there. That's really great. Thank you so much. And thank you for spending some time with us. This has really been a really delightful conversation. Now, as another tradition of the show, I will turn it over to Ron for the top 10. Thank you, Donna. Last month, the Practical Significance podcast brought you the top slogans that should be on t-shirts of statisticians and data scientists. We were hoping to see some of those t-shirts at this upcoming JSM, but alas, not every t-shirt slogan is a good idea. So this month, we bring you the top 10 rejected t-shirt slogans. I got to be honest, though, I'd wear most of these T-shirts. Okay, number 10, warning, I am the product of unsupervised learning. Number nine, permanently in the rejection region. Number eight, you come to me with this data now? You're kidding, right? Number seven, approaching normal asymptotically. Number six, data munging, looks like data fudging to me. Number five, no. 2% of your grant time is not enough. Number four follows from the last one. Visualize this. You'll have to picture the raised finger for yourself. Number three, proud to be uncorrelated with everything. Number two, I'm not only fit, I'm overfit. And the number one rejected statistics and data science t-shirt slogan, your AI whispers my name in its sleep. Well, that's it for the Practical Significance podcast for this month. We hope you enjoyed listening. Thanks for being with us. And we'll continue the discussion next month. Thank you for listening to this edition of Practical Significance, the podcast of the American Statistical Association. A new episode will be coming your way next month from Amstat News, the ASA's monthly membership magazine.